Well, good morning again. Uh, it's good to see you. Um, we are in Psalm uh, 57 this morning. So during the summer, we have been looking at various psalms, jumping around. Um, we've looked uh, at praise psalms. We've looked at creation psalms, messianic psalms, royal psalms. Uh, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in a lament psalm, so we have to return to one. <laughs> Uh, and so we are in uh, a psalm of lament this morning, a psalm of David, uh, Psalm 57. And it can be found in your order of service. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along. Uh, let's listen to the reading of God's word. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, if you are new to us, maybe this is your first Sunday or you've been visiting for a couple weeks and you're still trying to uh, figure out who we are, what we're about, or what makes CTK unique, you may not know that um, we're in the midst of, of celebrating a number of different things. We announced today Donna uh, starting to be on our staff team, but also uh, we are in the midst of a building campaign. So many of you all know that, but some of you may not know. After years of planning, of years of praying of years of raising money and saving money, we finally broke ground a few months ago, right? And we celebrated that. It was a great day. And if you just drive down a little bit on 419 towards Salem, you, you can see work that's being done. And I know some of you do this. I, I watch you from my window. You maybe don't see me, but I see you. <laughs> that kind of sounds a little foreboding, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm watching you. No, um, but, uh, but you come by and you want to see what's going on, right? You want to look and see the progress that's being made on the building. And if you've come out, you've seen there is work being done, right? I can see it out my window of my study, the bulldozer and the cement mixer and the backhoe loader and the rebar that's being bent, all these things that are being done. You can see that work is being done on the building, but what you don't see is a building, <laughs> right? It's like all that's out there are these big holes, 
And it feels like there's been big holes for months now. I, I, I don't know how long it's been, but it feels like it's been forever, isn't it? And at first, it was really exciting. I mean, there's holes, <laughs> uh, right? They're moving dirt. But after a while, you're kind of like, man, how, how many of these holes do they have to make? And not just like little ones, but huge ones, right? So like um, if a kid jumped into one of these holes, we wouldn't be able to see them. So so kids, when you come out, you know, look around, but, but just stay away from the holes because we don't want you to fall in. You, you might get stuck. So, um, but, but so after a while, I, I decided I was going to ask the project manager why they're spending so much time on these holes. Um, so I go out there, and I, I talk to him every day, um, the inquisitive pastor who has uh, lots of questions about the engineering of this building. Um, so I go out to him, and I say, so why are you spending all this time on the footers? Like, why, are we, why do we need this many footers? And he goes, well, uh, actually, pastor, uh, these aren't footers. They're peers. So it turns out that an MDiv doesn't mean you know anything about engineering. Um, <laughs> Uh, which I know nothing about engineering. So it turns out these are piers, not footers. Um, footers hold the weight, the slab will hold the weight, the foundation will hold the weight, but that's not what piers do. Piers actually hold the building in place. So this was fascinating. He told me that, uh, that because of the structure of our building, it's going to have a, a metal structure frame that will be covered in brick, and because of the size of it, there will be wind that will come through, and as the wind comes through, it will actually lift the building. Okay, now don't think Wizard of Oz here. Like, like it's not like one minute we're going to be worshiping, you know, towards at our property, and the next week we're at Tanglewood because our, our building got blown down the road. That's not the kind of lift he's talking about. But, but there will actually be some lift. And so the, the building needs to be tied to these piers so that it would be firm, that it wouldn't move when the winds came through. So when he told me this, I thought, man, that, that's a good use of time, you know. Please work on those piers because, uh, because I don't know about y'all, but <clears throat> I don't want our building to move. I want it to be firm. I want it to be established. I want it to be steadfast. I don't want winds to blow it around, right? Like, that would be a good building. We want that for our building. But, you know, we also want that for our faith. We want our faith that is firm and steadfast, that's immovable, right? I mean, how, how many of y'all have ever prayed to God, God, make me spineless. <laughs> God, when the winds of life blow through, just make me rootless. Blow me away, <laughs> right? We, we don't pray those things. We pray, God, make me firm. Allow my faith to be established, allow it to be steadfast, Right? That's what we want. That's what we want of our faith. We want to be able to say with David in verse 7, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. We want our faith to be firm. That's what David says. Now, I imagine that in a room this size, there's probably some people who have a little bit of a cynical bent to them. Um, I can be a little cynical at times. And so we hear David saying, my heart is steadfast, and we go, well, of course it's steadfast. I mean, the dude is the king, right? He's got power, he's got authority, he's got money. People have to do whatever he wants. Of course his faith is firm, right? The sun is shining, the birds are singing, things are going well. It's easy to say my heart is steadfast when things are just beautiful. But I want you to notice the context in which David is saying this. Yes, David is the anointed king. Yes, he is the one who is supposed to reign. 
But look at the context in which he says, my heart is steadfast. We see it in the title. In the title. Remember uh, a few weeks ago I mentioned that those words that come before verse 1, uh, verse, it's verse 0, is, is actually part of the Hebrew text. So the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew Bible that we translate our English from, that's verse 1. And I gave rationale for why we should believe these to be authentic. And what we see here is a title. And this is what people who have studied the Psalms call a long title. Because it doesn't just say the authorship, it gives us context. And what does it say? A miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. So remember our uh, historical books. Remember our redemptive history. David is the anointed king. But before David, there was King Saul. He was the first king of Israel. And remember, God's people said to God, we want a king like all the other nations. And so what did God do? He gave them a king like all the other nations, just like, right, Saul. That's who he was. And what did Saul do? Well, he led God's people astray, and he rejected the Lord. And because he rejected the ways of the Lord, the Lord rejected him and raised up David. He anointed David to succeed Saul. But, but Saul wasn't going to go quietly into the night, right? He wasn't just going to freely give up his authority and his power. And so what does he do? He seeks David's life. He wants to kill him. Well, word of this gets to Jonathan, Saul's son, who's David's best friend, and he says, David, my dad wants to kill you, so run. And so David flees to the caves and to the shadow of the mountain. And it's in that place that David says, my heart is steadfast. It's when his life is in danger. Think about that. David is the anointed king, but he's running like a fugitive. David, who's supposed to be living in a palace, is dwelling in a cave. David, whose life is supposed to be a blessing to Israel, his life is now in danger. The context in which he finds himself. I mean, look what he says in verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Verse 6, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way. I mean, if there was ever going to be a time when David's faith was going to waver, wouldn't it be now? I mean, the, his enemies have encircled him so much that he says they are like lions who are ready to destroy him. Fiery beasts, I don't know what fiery beasts are. Is that like... You know, would that be like dragons or something? It's not dragons, but, but fiery beasts, right? He is in desperation. His life is on the line. And yet he says in verse 7, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. We would think that he would waver. I mean, that's when our faith would waver, wouldn't it? When disease besets us, when people are gossiping about us, when evil is flooding our city streets, isn't that when our faith would be in danger of being blown and tossed aside? And yet David says, my heart is steadfast. How can he say this? In the context in which he finds himself, how can he say, my heart is steadfast? He can say it because his faith isn't determined by his circumstances. 
He's honest about it. He doesn't gloss over it, right? There are beasts. There are people trying to kill me. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't gloss over it. He doesn't wipe it away. He's honest about the difficulty that he is facing. Even when death is lurking, he acknowledges it. And yet, his heart is steadfast. His faith is firm because the object of his faith His faith is fixated on the object of his faith, not on his circumstances. And the object of his faith is God, is the Lord himself. And it's not just the Lord, but it's characteristics of who the Lord is. We see it in this passage that the object of David's faith is God's power. We see it in verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love And his faithfulness, as dire as this situation is, David is sure that God is going to act. He's going to descend from heaven to to preserve him and save him. God's power. There's something else that's fascinating going on in this passage. Look at verse 1. He says, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because it's Saul who wants him dead. So if David was going to ask for mercy, wouldn't he have asked for Saul to be merciful? Like, Saul, just stop stop trying to kill me. Stop seeking my life. Saul, leave me alone. Like, he's the one that you would think he would ask for mercy from, and yet David asked for God to be merciful. And so his request is actually reflecting that David has a belief that there is no situation outside of God's control. That God is powerful enough to be merciful even when there is someone seeking David's life. It reminds me of uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number one. Sometimes we use in our order of service the, this great uh, document of the Reformed Church, the Dutch Reformed. It says, God preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, All things must work together for my salvation. You see, what that Q&A is doing and what David is indicating here is that there is nothing outside of God's control. That though it is Saul who's seeking his life, it is God's power that is strong enough to rescue him. Nothing is outside of God's control. Now, as good uh, Presbyterians, as good Reformed people, if you're not familiar with Presbyterianism, we're Reformed in our theology. So that's... We, we think that's the most accurate interpretation of the Bible, right? We're Reformed, and as good Reformed, capital R, Presbyterians, right? We believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, that God is ruler and he is in control of all things, that the great things that are occurring in life and even the small things like the hairs on my head, that God controls and he rules over all things. He has absolute sovereignty. Amen? Yes. There's nothing outside of his control. We believe that with our minds and we say it with our lips, but when difficulty and trial come, do our hearts, are our hearts filled with a belief that there is no circumstance too great for God? That there is no situation too tough for him to deal with? It would have been easy for David to question God's power. But think about David. He had seen God's power before. Right? I mean, what, what's the most famous story about David? You don't have to have grown up in church to know. What's the most famous story? David and Goliath. Goliath that's right. David and Goliath, right? 
It's like movies are made about, you know, people talk about in sports. This is a David and Goliath, right? We all know what David and Goliath is. Goliath, this giant of the Philistines who was going to uh, challenge, he challenged Israel and said, send me out your captain, your champion, and whoever wins, the loser will be your slave. Send me out your champion, but, but Israel's afraid, right? They're weak-kneed, they're scared. Saul, who's the king, who should have been the one running out onto the battlefield, is kind of whimpering on the hill, right? I hope someone else comes because I don't want to do this because I will die. So who comes? A little shepherd boy, the youngest of the brothers. David comes and he stands before Goliath. He says, I will go to war with this giant. He stands before him and what does he say? I come to you. In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And he did. Right? I mean, that, woo, that is right. He cut off his head. That's the best part in every children's Bible, right? Like, that's how you know if it's a good children's Bible or not. If David takes the giant sword and he chops his head off, That's what he did. But it wasn't him relying on his own power or strength, right? What did he say? The Lord of hosts is going to do this. He will put you in my hand. I will strike you down by his power. David had witnessed it. He had experienced the power of God. That's why in times of difficulty, while he is fleeing to the caves, he can trust. His faith can be firm and established. I mean, that word in verse 7, this is fascinating, where he says, my heart is steadfast. That word has the connotation in the Hebrew to mean to be established or to to be prepared. You see, David's faith had been made firm through years of witnessing God's faithful works. His faith had been made prepared by hearing God's promises. His faith had been established by experiencing God's power. So when he's in the cave, his faith doesn't waver. He's sure that the cave won't be his final resting place because he had known the power of God. He'd witnessed it. He had experienced it. He had heard of it. And so too have we. We've heard and experienced the power of God in our own lives. We've heard of it from God's word. Right? Years later, there was another cave Another cave that looked like it would be the abode of the dead, a tomb. And then that tomb, that cave, it could not contain the power of God. Because from that tomb, Jesus was raised. In that cave that looked like death had reigned over Christ, that it had defeated Jesus, God, by his power, had raised him from the dead. Death could not contain him. The tomb was not strong enough for the power of God. And Jesus was raised to new life. And in being raised to new life, he powerfully raised us with him. So that all of our pain, all of our difficulty, all of our strength, all of those times when our faith would waver, it would be firm because of the power of Christ. That that is what God has done. He's been powerfully working in this world to redeem his people, to protect them. He has done that through Jesus. But we also see it in our own lives, right? For those who have put their trust in Christ, I mean, think about your life. I think about my life before I was a Christian 
and I look at my life now, and the change that has taken place, the only explanation for it is that there is something outside of me. Because I got to be honest with y'all, I am not strong enough, and you are not strong enough to elicit the change that has occurred in your life if you are a Christian. You are not strong enough to defeat sin on your own. You need the power of God, and we've seen it. We've seen it. Victory over sin. Turning from evil, the evil of our own hearts. We've seen it. The power of God at work in our lives. And so because we have witnessed it in the resurrection of Jesus, we've experienced it in our own lives. When we are in the cave, we need not waver. Our faith is firm because of the power of God. It is firm. That's why David's faith does not waver, because he is convinced of God's power, but also because of God's protection. God's protection. We see his protection revealed in this passage. We see it in verse 1. In you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storm of destructions pass. David doesn't find refuge in the cave. In the shadow of the mountain, right? Maybe Saul won't find me. Maybe I can just wait him out. That's not where his refuge is. In the shadow of his wing. What a wonderful metaphor, right? I mean, clearly God doesn't really have wings, right? He's a spirit. This is anthropomorphic language, right? It's a metaphor. That just as the hen would cover its eggs, just as a hen would cover its chicks to protect them from those beasts that would seek to devour and to destroy, that is what God will do to David. He will cover him. He will protect him. What a beautiful picture. That God does not leave us alone, but he covers us in the shadow of his wing. God powerfully protects David, and in doing so, he brings about his purpose. That's the third reason, the third aspect of God's character for why David puts his faith in him. The object of his faith is God's power, his protection, and finally his purpose. We see it in verse 2. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. See, David knows that God has made promises to him. Now, at this point in redemptive history, it's not the Davidic covenant that has been promised. So, if you recall, we, uh, I, I seem to talk about the Davidic covenant a lot. <laughs> um, I, thank you for the laugh. Maybe uh, you've experienced that. Um, but, um, but I do. I, we talk about it a lot because it's actually a very important promise that is made because it finds its fulfillment in Jesus because Jesus is the rightful heir of David. He sits on David's throne right now. So we bring it up a lot. I bring it up a lot. Uh, the Bible brings it up a lot. But, uh, but that's not what David's talking about here because in redemptive history, the Davidic covenant hasn't been promised to him yet. You see, that occurs in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But Psalm 57 is occurring in 1 Samuel. And so the promise that David is talking about, the purpose that God has for him, can't be this Davidic covenant in the back of his mind. It must be the purpose of him being the king. And David knows that he has been promised that. And so his faith does not waver. But you know what's fascinating to me about that? Even as he says, God will work his purpose for me, is that he doesn't know how. I mean, he's in a cave. He knows God's made these promises. He knows Saul is breathing threats. He knows if he steps out the wrong time, he could be shot with an arrow, right? He, he knows his life is on the line, and yet his faith rests on God's purposes for him, but he doesn't know how God is going to work those purposes together. 
He doesn't know when he'll be freed from the cave. He doesn't know if he'll be the one to slay Saul, which we know he isn't. We don't know. He doesn't know. And yet his faith does not waver. This is so encouraging to me. This is so encouraging to me because it tells us that our faith is not dependent upon us knowing. Our faith isn't dependent on us knowing how God is going to work out his promises. And he has made promises to us. Promises like the work that he began in you, he's going to see through to completion. The purposes he has for you to make you more and more like Christ. But we don't know how he's going to do it. We don't know how he's going to use that conversation we had last week or that relationship he's going to bring into our life in two years or the desires of our hearts five years from now. We don't know how he's going to intricately weave these different events together to make us more and more like Christ, but we're confident that he will because he has made promises and he has been faithful to them in the past. He has purposes for us, and he has been faithful to them again and again and again. And so we can have faith that his purposes will ring true again. And so, friends, this means that we will, at times, enter the darkness of the cave. And that there will be moments when it will feel like evil is reigning. And yet, in those moments, we need not fear. We need not know how God will rescue his people or how God will bring about his purposes. We simply need to rest on him. And we can because he's good. We can because he loves you. We can because he has shown himself to be faithful, to be powerfully protecting his people time and again. And so our faith can be firm. It can be established. David's faith is immovable because of the object of his faith, and this elicits in him a song. He sings. It's wonderful. Look at verses 7 through 11. He sings. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. He sings of God's steadfast love in verse 10. That word steadfast love there, it's different than the verb that's used in verse 7. For stead, excuse me, the noun in verse 7 for steadfast. It's a different word. You see, David's not talking about a steadfastness that happens to us that's being established and prepared, he's now talking about God's steadfast love, his covenantal love that he has had for his people that didn't need to be established because it was established before the foundations of the earth. He will sing of that love. He will sing of that glory. He will sing of that care. I mean, did you hear the language that he uses? God's love spreads to the heavens. His faithfulness to the clouds, his glory is over all the earth. His glory and care and love is so great, the earth can't contain it, and David can't contain himself. He must sing. His heart overflows with rejoicing of God's unfailing, never-ending, promise-fulfilling love. But he's not just singing for himself. Look who he sings for. Verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. 
I will sing praises to you among the nations. The peoples and nations will hear about the great act of deliverance. He can't help but tell others. But what's amazing is that this is even in the midst of struggle and in the midst of difficulty that he says this is what he will do. That he will sing of God's glory, that his faith lifts his eyes off his difficulty, off his circumstance, and it looks beyond to the glory of God so that others will hear from him of God's love. You know, not everyone who would hear would their faith be firm. There would some who would hear David singing of God's love whose faith would be shaken. I imagine that even this morning, there would be some of you who come in this morning and your faith feels like it is wavering. And whether you come and your faith is immovable or whether it is shaking, whether it is on strong ground or it feels like it is on sand, we need this song. We need to hear of the glory of God filling the earth. We need to hear that that even in the midst of difficulty and struggle, that God's glory will fill the earth. We need to hear the melody of God's steadfast love filling the heavens. We need this. We need to hear it and we need to sing it. That's what David does. He can't contain himself. The glory of God is so great, his heart overflows. He must sing of his glory and so he sings. And when we consider all that God has done, when we consider his purposes, his protection, when we think of his power, we can't help but sing either. We sing to God and to one another. We sing to those whose faith is shaking. We join with the hymn writer. We sing, fear not. Fear not, God is with you. Friend, be not dismayed, for he is our God. And he'll give you aid. We sing to those whose faith is sure, but also those whose faith is wavering. We sing the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. He will not, no, will not, will not desert to his foes. We sing to one another so that all of our faiths would be firm and established. We sing the soul that though all hell should endeavor to shake, it will not. God will never forsake. That is what we sing so that our hearts would be steadfast, they would be firm, they would be immovable, that our faith would be sure. That's what we sing to one another. We make melody in our hearts. We fill the earth with song of the glory of God because he has powerfully protected his people and he is bringing about his purpose. We sing, our heart is steadfast, O God. Our hearts are steadfast. Amen. Father, we do thank you that you have powerfully revealed yourself to your people, that you have protected your saints, that you have brought about your purposes, that you have shown yourself to be faithful in the past and you are faithful today. We have seen it, we have witnessed it, we have heard it, and we have experienced it for ourselves. And so we ask that you would make our faith firm, establish us in your word, Help us not to waver or to be blown, but to be firm and established, immovable and steadfast. Do this, we pray, so that our hearts would sing and that peoples and nations would know of the glory of God. We pray this in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen.